Good morning. Open your Bibles, please, to the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. And today, um, it gets real in the sense that we're going to look at probably two of the greatest Christians who ever lived uh, have a conflict in which they separate. And a lot of trees have been killed and ink has been spilled, trying to determine who's right or who was wrong. I don't think you'll be satisfied if you're looking for that today. But we will learn a lot about conflict uh, because we all have it and we all live with it. And we all have to, uh, to deal with it. But today we're going to begin reading in chapter 15 and verse Oh, let's say 35, and read through chapter 16, verse 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. Both Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance and decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that during our time together, your word would be what it is, truth, and your spirit would take your word and work in us and upon us, that you would show us the beauty and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would show us how desperately we need him more than our next breath, and that you would show us your love, which is compelling and overwhelming and at times astounding. And we pray that as we look at this text together, we'd be better people because we spent this time together because you have worked on us, and then we will glorify you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One thing I love about the Bible is the Bible is very realistic. God is a realist. And he calls people to be realistic 
about our own flaws. In the aftermath of a fruitful ministry, we sometimes stumble over our own shortcomings. For example, think of Elijah. We just heard a Sunday school class on Elijah and how he stood against the prophets of Baal. Uh, and then if you keep reading in chapter 19, he's running from his life because he's terrified by one woman named Jezebel. And he falls into a fit of depression, sort of has his tail between his legs, and is hiding out, thinking he's the only one that's standing for God. We're all flawed. And we all come up short. Elijah wallowed in self-pity after the great triumph over Baal at Mount Carmel. And then we re rediscover over and over again how the gospel advances and the church grows through not our power or piety, but through the name of Jesus and his grace. So it was with Paul and Barnabas. Having stood together in the face of persecution from without and opposition from within the church, having seen the joyful resolution of the controversy over the Gentile converts, and having carried other uh, on further fruitful evangelism at Antioch, so bitterly disagreed that their collaboration of ministry was shattered. That's pretty serious. Paul will occupy center stage throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and we will hear only a couple of times Barnabas ever mentioned again. And so the hero of the story in the Bible of every story is never us. It's always Jesus. And so let's take time to, then to go on and go through the text together and see what we have here. Paul and Barnabas have just returned home uh, victoriously from the council of Jerusalem, bringing the good news to the Gentiles, believers, that they did not have to become circumcised in order to be saved or to, they did not have to adopt a Jewish lifestyle in order to be saved. And if that decision had gone the other way, then evangelism would pretty much have been shut down and um, uh, they would not uh, be able to continue uh, their missionary journeys. And so the Apostle Paul, as usual, could not wait to get going. His plan was to retrace uh, those memorable steps of his first missionary journey uh, that began in Antioch to the island of Cyprus, transversing it from Salamis to Paphos, and then sailing to Asia Minor and Pamphylia, and traveling up into Galatia, having to cross some really rugged, tough mountains, uh, and then um, on to Pamphylia, to Galatia, to Iconium, Lystra, Perga, and Italia. Now these were worthy plans. And he and Barnabas had been up to this point a fabulous team. They expected to follow up on these new believers and to reprove false doctrine and to teach these people more about God's grace and to share with them and reinforce the decision and results of the Jerusalem Council and to build up the leadership in each church. Paul and Barnabas were not willing to make the mistake so often made in our times of massive evangelism with very little follow-up. However, to Paul's lasting amazement, soon after he began, he found himself 
taking an unexpected leap, unexpected leap across the Dardanelles Straits from Asia to Europe in obedience to a special call we will see next time uh, to Macedonia. So important was this redirection of Paul's life that a Pauline scholar by the name of Longnecker says, authentic turning points in history are few, but surely among them is that Macedonian vision because it changed the world. It changed the world of Europe. It even changed your world. And these are momentous days in God's economy. And so they were working hard to keep together with God's agenda. But something else happened. Now, Paul was directed from point A in Antioch with his neatly ordered plans for follow-up to go to point B in Europe. And the answer, with God's will, is it never fits a neat little formula. Uh, we sometimes hear to know how to do God's will. Uh, you've heard of the drop and flop method, haven't you? Uh, to find God's will, where you just drop the Bible, wherever it falls open, that you do what's there. Well, that doesn't work. I could tell you a funny story about that, but I won't. Uh, you know, you know the drop-flop method. This boy was searching as to whether or not this girl was the one he was supposed to marry. So he dropped his Bible open, and the first sentence he read was, Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> he said, well, i got to try again. So he drops the Bible, and it flops open again. and says, what thou doest, do quickly. So he closed his Bible up and said, I don't think that's God's will for me. And people are kind of funny about how they discern God's will. Paul did not fully understand what was going on until Luke sat down for a chat after everything was over. But in retrospect, Paul's experience uh, is marvelously revealing as a tapestry of God's decisions. But notice the conflict and failure we run into in verses 36 to 41. They came up with a real natural proposal. Paul and Barnabas had worked well together in Antioch, and their teamwork had sort of been charmed with a lot of grace. Barnabas' relational gifts, coupled together with Paul's mastery of the law and solid understanding of the gospel, made a great team. Moreover, all of the events of the missionary journey had produced in them a profound relationship and even an exchange of soul between these two men of God. They shared not only the wounds, but vision. They were soul brothers, to be sure. To be sure they had disagreements, I'm, I'm sure of that, and occasionally disappointed one another, but never did they ever dream of being totally separated, except perhaps by death. Certainly, the two missionaries did not expect what was about to happen. Now, if you'll look with me again, I want to read uh, verse 37. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Now that's another thing I love about the Bible is it doesn't gloss over 
Why would, if the Bible is propaganda for Christianity, which I often hear uh, skeptics and unbelievers say that it's just a document of propaganda, why put something like this in here? Why would you not want to defend at all costs the reputation of the Apostle Paul who wrote more than half of the New Testament? Why would you do that? Why would you even include this? But we include this because it happened and because there's much uh, we can learn from that. We cannot be sure why John Mark originally left the first missionary journey in Pamphylia, but most likely it was probably a combination of things. The realities of missionary life with its ongoing conflicts and discomforts, sickness in Pamphylia, Paul's growing ascendancy over Barnabas, and a pampered upbringing, homesickness, whatever. Something else you need to know, though. Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. They had the same aunt, Mary. Mary was the house that hosted all of those meetings that take place in the book of Acts where Peter gets out of jail and comes back to Mary's house. And so Aunt Mary was the aunt to both Barnabas and John Mark. Sometimes blood's thicker than water, isn't it? Sometimes that's why conflicts happen, because of family. It's just a reality. Might have been the reality here, don't know that, but they were cousins. Colossians 4.10 tells us that. And they saw the situation, Paul and Barnabas, much differently. Barnabas, let me just tell you the kind of guy Barnabas was. He's the son of encouragement. Barnabas has a great big heart. Barnabas is a relational giant. He's a champion. He knows how to get along with people. He knows how to see the best in people. He knows how to encourage people to grow and develop. Paul, on the other hand, is a task person. He's got an agenda. Paul is always driven and driving. He was driven to persecute the church until he was accosted and arrested by the Holy Spirit on the Damascus Road. And all that did was turn him around to be the same kind of person for Jesus. And that's exactly the way he was. But here's the problem. Sometimes big-hearted people are peace-at-any-price people, and big-hearted relational people are people-pleasers. And maybe Barnabas didn't want Mary to find out that John Mark wasn't given another chance. We don't know that. Paul, on the other hand, being so driven, having such a huge agenda, noticed that Barnabas wigged out on him. Barnabas forsook them. He, he left when the going was rough. You can't count on a person like that. I don't think he's ready to go on this trip. And so Paul, being task-oriented as he was, had a tendency not to be as forgiving or tender toward people who mess up. Barnabas, on the other hand, was the other way. And so when you bring those two together and you have an event like this, Paul is thinking the stakes are too high. We can't take him with us. He left us last time. This is too significant, too important for the kingdom of God. And Paul could parade all his re reasons, I'm sure logically, almost infallibly. Whereas Barnabas is saying on the other side, give him another chance. Isn't that what the gospel's all about? Isn't the gospel for people who fail and need forgiveness, and then we approach them and give them another chance to serve the Lord? Well, apparently neither side gave in. 
neither side. Now, you may wonder who was right. And my answer is both and neither. <laughs> who can tell? I don't know who was right. Nobody knows who's right. They both have a compelling case to make. But apparently, now when you get into what had happened, Paul uh, considered what John Mark had done as diversion, and Barnabas perhaps had seen some kind of change in John Mark who wanted another chance, and Barnabas resented Paul's rejection of the young man. The result was, verse 39, in your Bible translates sharp disagreement, is the Greek word paroxymos, is the word from which we derive our English word paroxysm, which denotes violent action or emotion. They must have had a meltdown, a sheer meltdown. You ever had a meltdown in a conflict with someone? Where your tongue got a little bit loose? You stained the walls maybe with a little language that, uh, can Christians do that? I've heard them do it. Have I done it myself? I'm not talking about me. We're talking about Paul and Barnabas here. But there was a severe conflict here. And so, this was not a, a gentleman's disagreement, but an intense and passionate conflict. Long time ago in a faraway place, I went through something called church planting assessment. In order to be a church planter for a mission to North America for the PCA, I had to go to Columbia, South Carolina and go through a week of boot camp of assessment to determine whether or not I had the disposition, the temperament, the personality, the gifts to go out, move to a city where I knew no one, and start a PCA church. And so they did all this testing on me and also on Pam, and, uh, you know, they tested us every conceivable way. We sent all that information in. I go there, and a friend of mine who I met there looked at me, and he said, now, they're watching you every second. I said, do they have cameras in the room? He said, I don't think so. He said, but they are watching you every second. And so I was assigned the responsibility of developing a mission strategy for a particular city in the United States. Uh, fortunately, I'd been to that city before and I knew something about it. And so they assigned me a team of other church planters, I thought. And so we sit down at the table and we begin to discuss together the idea of the strategy we would use to plant a church in this particular city. There was one guy in the group, I was the leader, who opposed everything. I said, everything. And he was just a constant, what a, what a Christian would call not a very nice guy, what other people might call something else. But he was a jerk. And he just persistently, just, just completely demolished everything I wanted to do with arguments, whatever. And, you know, I was starting to get enough of it. But I knew I was being watched. <laughs> so I remember asking him to come out in the hallway. And I remember looking at him, and I'm, I don't remember his name, it's a long time ago, but I remember looking at him and go, you know what, the odds are I can't be wrong about everything. I cannot possibly 
be wrong about everything. What is the problem here? I don't even know you. He said, well, I don't like your personality. I said, well, that ain't likely to change. We still got something we've got to do here, and we need to come together the best we can, and I'm willing to concede on some things. Let's try to cooperate and work together, but right now we're at a stalemate. The clock is ticking. I got to present this thing Monday, I mean, uh, Wednesday morning, you know, and something was at stake for me because I really wanted to be a church planner when I grew up. So, long story short, we come in, sit down at the table again to start on developing a strategy, and he starts it up again. And so I just said, time out. <laughs> I think we ought to pray. And so we prayed, every person around the table prayed, and the minute I said amen, we had a plan. just came right out. Everything laid out, everything fit together. He got quiet. We were able to put together a plan. And uh, I don't know if I should say this. I'm old enough to say this now. I got one of the highest scores you ever could get in that development of the plan from the agency. I couldn't believe it. But there was such conflict. All it took was one person. And he was completely, and you know what I found out later? He was a plant. They had put him in the group to do that to me, to see how I would respond. That's dirty, wasn't it? I didn't like that. But they play those games sometimes. But who was to blame here? Well, that's, that's not an easy question. Scholars have paroxysms over that. I do feel for Barnabas, and yet Paul is the greatest of the apostles. Perhaps both of them were right. No one can rightly blame Barnabas for wanting to give his cousin a second chance, nor can we fault Paul for fearing to trust this person who had forsaken them earlier. Sometimes it seems the church here, it looks like it, and according to verse 40, sided with Paul, and perhaps that is where we should leave it because they commended him to the grace of God. It was a miserable predicament. By the way, what causes conflicts? If you've ever read Ken Sandy's book on the peacemaker, he says conflicts can arise in one of four ways. There's what he calls a difference of values, goals, gifts, and callings, priorities, ex expectations, interest, or opinions, a category which includes this incident. In addition, he cites three others. Misunderstandings arise from poor communication. Competition over limited resources such as time or money and sinful attitudes and habits that lead to sinful words and actions. Was this sin itself? I don't know because I can't see their motives for what they did. But it was a genuine disagreement where they parted at least ways ministry. For some, Paul was wrong. It was either a case of uh, personal uh, grudge, carrying suspicion when there was no real cause, or simply an unwillingness to forgive past failures. Other people think that Barnabas was soft, that he needed to grow a spine. That's a tough one. A tough one. But the truth is, even the best Christians do not always agree. Sometimes good Christians intensely disagree. 
When two believers disagree over an important issue, at least one of them must have something wrong in his life, if not in his walk, at least in some viewpoint. All Christians walk with limps. We all rely on the grace of God. Some of the church's greatest leaders have been very difficult people. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, wrote a book. You know what the title of the book was? Living with a Difficult Man. You never hear that, do you, when you hear everybody talk about how great, brilliant Jonathan Edwards was? The woman that lived with him said he was a difficult man. Martin Luther himself said this, I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike, fighting against innumerable monsters and devils. I am born for the removing of stumps and stones, cutting away thistles and thorns, and clearing wild forests. That was a rather sober evaluation, but Luther was not exaggerating. He could indeed be a very difficult man. If you doubt it, read his book, Table Talk. He was one of God's princes. Similar things could be said about Edwards, John Wesley, and other Christian leaders. So the unthinkable happened here. Paul and Barnabas agreed to disagree, went their separate ways for ministry. And this is the last glimpse that Luke gives us of Barnabas, one of the noblest figures in the New Testament. I have a sneaking suspicion that Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews. The reason why, he hung out with Paul. He would have gotten the theology of the whole Old Testament. A lot of people think Paul wrote it, but there's very little solid evidence for that. But somebody who knew what Paul knew wrote it. I'm leaning toward Barnabas. Barnabas goes back to Cyprus, which is his home country, and that's where he takes John Mark with him, and they're involved in ministry there. And so Paul was losing the man to whom he owed more than any other human being. When Barnabas sailed away with John Mark to his native Cyprus, he sailed into further fruitful ministry, but out of history. In contrast, the continuing ministry of Paul and Silas is very well known. The point here, however, is that the relationship between, between two very great men of God had failed. Nowhere in the account does it say the two prayed and it seemed good to them in the Holy Spirit for Mark to remain or for the two of them to double their ministry by going in different directions. The omission of a harmonious conclusion indicates the unstated but undeniable failure of two of the greatest souls the church has ever known to come together. What does this reveal to us about God and how he directs those who are his servants? While God did not cause the disagreement or the fateful separation, he used it to guide both men to increased fruitfulness and service. The only people God's got to work with are crooked sticks. And God can make a straight line with a crooked stick. That's all he's got to work with. That's what we are. There were now two missionary teams instead of one. Moreover, Silas brought to Paul's ministry some ingredients that Barnabas didn't have. He was a Roman citizen. He was a prophet. He probably spoke Greek fluently. And he served as Paul's stenographer. We see that in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Barnabas was a great loss, but Silas was also a great gain. And it is often 
through our difficulties and failures that God leads us to increase creativity and productivity. He doesn't throw us on the ash heap when we mess up. Our God is a redeeming God. Philip Brooks, one of the greatest preachers in America, failed miserably as a school teacher. He didn't like his students, and they didn't like him. And Brooks wrote much. I wrote that when he was fired, he says, I don't know what will become of me, and I don't care very much. I wish I was 15 years old again. I believe I might become a stunning man. But somehow or other, I do not seem in the way to come to much right now. Anyone who has seen his statue in front of the Holy Trinity Church in Boston knows that spiritual greatness came out of this personal failure as he yielded to God's redirection in his life. Man had a huge ego, but God usually uses some people with that. Though there's nothing wrong with desiring success, it is usually from our failures that we learn the most. We sometimes experience what we can discern as failure, and we cannot see God's hand of guidance any more than Paul could when he set out heartsick on his second missionary journey with his new companion. Such, such time, we have to trust God's direction and entrust our hearts to Him, and we should not seek failure or excuse it, but we can learn from it and grow through it. I have learned more in my life from how I have messed up far more than when I succeeded. As Barnabas sails to Cyprus, Paul begins traveling around the northeast end of the Mediterranean by the Gulf of Issus and on through the Syrian gates, a narrow road between steep rocks and the sea, and then inland past Tarsus, over against Mount Taurus, and finally to the churches at Galatia where he and Barnabas had ministered on his first journey and where he would now discover a man by the name of Timothy, actually a teenager at this point. So in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 16, Paul comes to Lystra. By the way, Lystra was where Paul was stoned. He seemed to go there a lot, but he went back to Lystra. And he was impressed by a young man by the name of Timothy. He was probably a teenager. His father was an unbelieving Gentile. His mother uh, was, was regarded as godly by those who knew her. And uh, his grandmother, Lois, was as well. Evidently, Timothy had come to Christ during Paul's first missionary journey and had demonstrated remarkable spiritual growth so now Paul circumcised him, and young Timothy began on his missionary career. Alarm ought to be going off for you. Why should there be an alarm going off for you? Because I thought in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, they said what? You don't have to be circumcised. Why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? This was not a compromise of the principle of the Council of Jerusalem. It was not. Paul had strongly resisted circumcision in the per case of Titus, a pure Greek, 
because of the principle of Gentile liberty was at stake, but Timothy was both Jew and Greek and uncircumcised and would continually offend the Jews with no advantage to the cause of freedom. So Timothy voluntarily removed that stumbling block, which leads us to where Paul says, I become all things to all men if by many, any means I may reach some. In other words, in this case, it was a cultural stumbling block that he removed. It was never to indicate that he needed that for salvation. And Paul loved Timothy. Uh, this was the birth of a rare and beautiful friendship. Paul even called Timothy his own son. God's guidance is always multi-layered. Um, and a multifaceted jewel. Lystra was where Paul had earlier been stoned and tossed on the refuse heap, and it was in Lystra that Paul now found and received Timothy, and how Timothy had become a disciple of Christ, probably the same way Paul had been influenced toward the gospel by the stoning of Stephen. And at Lystra, Paul had gone through Stephen's experience, though he didn't die. And Timothy saw it and was drawn to Christ for whom Paul was willing to suffer. Undoubtedly, during this time, the apostles reflected much on the misery of the stoning in Lystra and the recent separation from his beloved Barnabas. Both experiences brought him great disappointment and pain. But God loves to bring joy and hope during times of trial, trial and now it was Paul and Silas and Timothy co-workers for Jesus Christ. Ever since Golgotha, Christianity has transmitted hardship and failure into holiness. Being half Gentile and half Jew, Timothy could bridge both cultures. Perhaps if John Mark had been along, they could not have taken on another young trainer. And so the sovereign God makes excellent use of the most trying of circumstances. Paul's missionary policy, we can see in verses 4 and 5, was quite effective. It wasn't necessarily smooth sailing, but it was very effective in its work. And we will see more of that next Sunday. Without justifying either person in the conflict, Luke shows how the sovereign God advances his kingdom through flawed servants. God had doubled his workforce as Barnabas and Mark set sail for Cyprus, and Paul enlisted the Judean prophet Silas and took the overland route to the northwest, visiting the churches of Syria and Cilicia. That God uses sinful servants never excuses our sin, but always holds up and glorifies his grace. So a sad cha uh, chapter in many ways, and yet on the other hand, it's encouraging because most people in conflict want it to be over. They want it to be done. They want to move on from it, however that may be. Now, there are lots of right reasons we have conflict. James tells us in ch uh, chapter 4, he says, what, where does fighting and warring and conflict come from? And he said it comes from the lust of our own souls. We, we crave, we want. 
In other words, sometimes conflict isn't so much objective as it is subjective, something in us. We're conflicted people. And since we're such idolaters and we long to find life and everything in it in whatever our heart craves at the moment, when somebody gets in the way of me and my idol, meltdowns can occur. So there are lots of ways to look at conflict, lots of ways to understand. It's like a jewel. You can turn up and look at all the facets in it as the light comes through it. But the result is, while conflicts are messy, while success seems far away, God takes the conflict and does far more of our failure in it with us than he would have ever done otherwise. That's why there's always hope. There's always hope for us because of our sovereign, gracious God. Let us look together to the Lord as we pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this text. It is a challenging text. It is a hard text. There's not a single person in here who hasn't been in some kind of conflict. And we pray that you would help us evaluate our own hearts and our own motives Repent where we need to, uh, reconcile where we need to, and give you glory. But we're grateful today that you can take these messy relationships and bring out of them something beautiful. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.